And as you're resuming your seats, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, and considering the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, give attention to God's holy word. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Are before you. And we acknowledge through prayer that this is your worship that you have appointed and ordained. And so we ask that as you have appointed this means of grace, you would bless this means of grace for the glorification of your name, the building up of your church, and the exaltation of Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, as many of you are aware, hunting season is upon us, and every hunter will go out into the woods, and they have one unchangeable purpose when they go in the woods. They want to bag a deer. They either want to put, well, they want to put meat in the freezer, and if we get a trophy as well, that's a nice bonus. But hunters go out with an overall purpose for why they hunt. They're trying to catch their game. They're trying to put meat in the freezer. However, when a hunter goes out in the woods, he will have a different game plan depending on where and when he's hunting. There's all kinds of things that go into a hunter's plan. His scent, his clothing, his uh, stand, where that's going to be placed, which way the wind is blowing, what kind of weapon is he going to use, what kind of calls is he going to use, what kind of knife does he have to process the deer, how is he going to process the deer. There's all kinds of factors that go into a game plan for hunting. And if you've hunted any amount, you'll know that plans don't always work out. You can have the best scent, the best weapon, the best spot, The wind in your favor, and you can strike out. So sometimes plans don't work. Well, what ends up having to happen is you have to change your plan. Maybe this spot doesn't work. 
Maybe that weapon's not powerful enough. Maybe your scent was too strong. You need to do something else to cover up your scent. So you have to change your plan, but the overall purpose stays the same. You might change weapons. You might change stands. You might change gear. You're still trying to catch a deer. It's likewise with the Lord at a metaphorical level. Psalm 3311 tells us that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. You see, the Lord in the salvation of mankind has one unchangeable, eternal purpose. And that one unchangeable and eternal purpose often comes to us in different administrations. God at one time was administering his unchangeable purpose in a certain way. And then later on, he found, as it were, understand we're speaking as men, he found that he needed to change the way he administered his eternal purpose. And so even though it may look like the Lord's plans are failing, Even though it may look like the Lord's church is dying, His purpose never changes. His overall goal can never be thwarted. The thoughts of His heart are to all generations. His counsel stands forever. And chiefly, His overall purpose is the salvation of His elect. The one thing that God is doing in history and through his covenant is bringing his elect to salvation. And what we're going to see in this passage is that because the old covenant was breached, the Lord, in fulfillment of his eternal purpose, blessed us with the new covenant. Because the old covenant was breached, the Lord, in fulfilling his eternal purpose, blessed us with the new covenant. Now, before we get into the details of this passage, I do want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. Many have seen the old covenant transitioning into the new and have called the new covenant a plan B or have described the church as God's Uh, backup plan when he failed with Israel. That is not the case at all as we're going to see in this passage. And what we're going to see actually is that the new covenant, the, the covenant that we enjoy today, was God's purpose all along. His goal was always to do what he does in the new covenant. And in order to understand this passage, we're just going to consider two things. The breach of the Old Covenant, verses 7 through 9, and the blessing of the New Covenant, verses 10 through 13. The breach of the Old Covenant, verses 7 through 9, and the blessing of the New Covenant, verses 10 through 13. Just a note on our passage, this is, you may be aware, the longest single quotation from the Old Testament. This is the longest continuous quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from Jeremiah 31. And the reason this passage is quoted uh, at length in this chapter is because this prophecy of Jeremiah is one of the most important prophecies of the entire Old Testament. 
And so the author, in proving his case to his Jewish audience, cites one of the most significant prophecies to show them the new covenant is the only way of salvation. Now, the way he proves this argument, what he's going about as he begins to speak about the breach of the old covenant, notice what he says in verse 7. He says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place to seek for a second. Now, what this means here is that if the first covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant, would have accomplished God's purpose, if the first covenant had done what God eternally purposed to do, there was no need for a second covenant. There's no need for a new covenant if the first one does the job. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is going on? If the first covenant is faultless, uh, there's no need for a second, but we see that there is a second covenant. And so what's happening? We'll turn to Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. It's very important to keep in mind what God's eternal purpose is. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. God's eternal purpose is to reconcile man to himself unchangeably. God's purpose was to bring man into union and communion with himself in such a way that that union and communion could never be broken. In such a way that man could never again fall away from God's fellowship. And as Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 8 through 13, that eternal purpose was always centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which has been hidden, uh, which, which, uh, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. You see, God's eternal purpose when he gave his word to man was to save man by his own power. It was to save man by his own wisdom. To save man by a divine righteousness and an immutable and unchangeable salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's eternal purpose. And now as we go back to Hebrews chapter 8, we see that the first covenant must have had some faults because there is a new covenant. The old covenant didn't last. And so there must have been some faults in the old covenant. We have to note, though, that the fault is not on God's part. God, who is perfect in everything that he does, was not at fault to give Israel the first covenant. 
Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Turn to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Speaks about the perfection of God's law. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. David writes, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. The fault was not on God's side. His law is perfect. His judgments are true and righteous. Well, as we go back to Hebrews chapter 8, we learn the fault was on the people's side. Notice what the author says now in verse 9. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. Because finding fault with them, finding fault with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You see, the fault was all on the people's side. He goes on to say in verse 9, this new covenant that he's going to make is not going to be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. The failure of the first covenant is the failure of men. Notice that the people he is speaking about are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is a phrase from the Old Testament. It's used to refer to the visible church. Now let me explain this a little bit. The church has different characteristics depending on the age that we're looking at. In the first age, with Adam and Eve, the church was simply their family through the line of Seth. In the age of Abraham, the church was Abraham's descendants who had the sign of the covenant. In the days of Moses, which is being spoken about here, the church was the whole house of Israel and Judah, that vast nation that came out of Egypt. And so when the Lord says that uh, Israel and Judah did not maintain my covenant, he's speaking to the visible church, those outwardly that bear the signs of the covenant, those outwardly that have the name of the people of Jehovah. Israel and Judah were those that were circumcised. They had the outward sign of the covenant, and so they were still outwardly God's people. Now we need to take serious note of this. It was the visible church that broke God's covenant. It was the people of Jehovah, the sheep of his pasture, the people of his hand, as we read in Psalm 95, who violated God's covenant. I think sometimes, brothers and sisters, it is tempting for us to make much out of the sins of the world and little out of the sins of the church. The Lord finds fault with his own church and arraigns them and says that they were at fault. In general, just going through the Old Testament, consider all the ways that man has breached God's covenant. Adam breached God's covenant by sin, Genesis 3, 17. 
Noah breached God's covenant by drink. Genesis 9.21 says that Noah got drunk. Abraham, by adultery, breached God's covenant. Genesis 16, verse 2. He listened to the voice of his wife and took a second wife. Israel, by idolatry, breached God's covenant. Several passages here, because this is the, um, the, the example that's being looked at in Hebrews chapter 8. Isaiah 57, 3 through 13. Jeremiah 3, 1 through 10. Ezekiel 16, 36. In all of these passages... The nation of Israel is condemned because like an unfaithful wife, they gave themselves over to idolatry. And in the Ezekiel passage, the Lord makes it even stronger and he says, I gave her a certificate of divorce because of her unfaithfulness. David as well broke the covenant that God made with him through pride. You know the story in 1 Samuel 12, 5 through 12. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes to confront David, and he gives him a parable. A poor man had one sheep that he loved, one, one lamb. And the rich man who had flocks upon flocks came and stole that lamb from this poor man. And it says that David, in a rage, says, he shall repay fourfold for what he has done. And then Nathan says, you're the man. You are the one who's done this. And David, in his pride, stole the lamb from the poor man. Again, in 1 Chronicles 21.4, this is the episode where David orders the census of the nation. Now, ordering that census without God's command was an act of pride on David's part. He wanted to, as it were, count his people so he could know how great he was. And then there's an argument that ensues between Joab and David. If you want to go look at the passage, you, you can. It would be good to read this afternoon. First Chronicles 21.4. And Joab says to David, Lord, don't do this thing. This is a transgression. We shouldn't do this census. And then the text says, the king's word prevailed over Joab. Remember who Joab was. He was David's tip of the spear. He was David's bloody warrior. And David overpowered him in the argument. David breached the covenant through pride. Now, in particular, we need to look a little more closely at this breach of the covenant because it's key to understanding the rest of the passage. In particular, the breach of the covenant was because of the weakness of the flesh. Turn to Romans chapter 8. This is a very good parallel passage that speaks about the flesh versus the spirit. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in verse 1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, listen carefully, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The word law here, as Paul uses it, refers to the Ten Commandments in particular. Chapter 7 shows us this, thou shalt not covet. But the Ten Commandments are, uh, as it were, a, a symbol of the entire Mosaic economy. And so when Paul speaks about the law, he's speaking about the Ten Commandments. 
in particular, but that also applies to the entire Mosaic Covenant. The law could not do this because it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And thus, it was the carnal, fleshy nature of Israel that broke God's covenant. Turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, where the prophet, where this prophecy comes from. Jeremiah chapter 9 speaks to this. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these... I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners, all who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So Jeremiah points out, Judgment is coming upon those who are outwardly circumcised because inwardly they still live according to the flesh. Inwardly their hearts have not been transformed. Inwardly they are no better than the pagan nations around them. Though outwardly they have the privileges, inwardly they don't have the life. Outwardly they have the promises, but inwardly they don't have the faith. Outwardly they have the law, but inwardly they have no obedience from the heart. And therefore, the covenant was breached. Brothers and sisters, we shall not escape this judgment if we live according to the flesh. This condemnation fell upon Israel and it will fall upon the church if we live according to the flesh. What does it mean to live and to walk in the flesh? It means to try and keep God's covenant in your own power. It means to live as if you are able to fulfill God's commandments. It means to live as if your wisdom, your might, and your riches are worthy of glorying in. Notice that Jeremiah prefaces this with that beautiful passage. Let him who glories glory in this. Not that he is righteous, but that God is merciful. Not that he is fit but that God will make him fit. How often, how few in the visible church of our day truly walk according to the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, and he says, the works of the flesh are manifest. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. How full is the church of these things? 
And as Paul the Apostle says, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God because they live according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you. If you live and walk in the flesh, be reconciled to God. Flee the wrath to come. Be reconciled to Him Or the fate of Israel may be your fate. You notice the other thing that the Lord says in verse 9. They broke my covenant, and I regarded them not. The word in Greek, I regarded them not, is a word that means to be without care, unconcerned, ignoring. What a state to be in, brothers and sisters. Where the God of heaven, whose name is merciful kindness, abounding in goodness and truth. What a state to be in where that God ignores you. That God does not listen. Where that God is careless towards your estate. This is an overturning of one of the most precious promises we have in the New Testament. You remember what Peter says in chapter 5 of his letter. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. And what this word means in Hebrews chapter 8 is that those who breach God's covenant and walk in the flesh, God does not care for you. What a horrible state to be in. Hosea 4, 17, another passage that speaks about Israel's idolatry, puts it this way says that Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Preachers, don't bother. Angels, don't protect. Holy Spirit, depart from him. Leave him alone. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that nobody in this congregation is in that state. My labors in my prayer closet for this congregation is that our flesh would be mortified and we would not suffer this fate that God would be ignorant of us and careless as to what happens. Having seen the breach of the covenant, we're now ready to see the blessing of the new covenant. And that's in verses 10 through 13. The blessing of the new covenant that the the author describes here that Jeremiah prophesied is nothing less than life in the Holy Ghost. It's a beautiful contrast here, isn't there? Because Israel broke my first covenant through their carnal disobedience, I'm going to bless them with a new covenant whereby I provide them the Holy Spirit. And I make them able through my power to do what they cannot do for themselves. Notice in verse 10, the people that this covenant is made with. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Notice that he says nothing about Judah here. I think this contrast, at the first part, it was Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom, the outward visible church. Now, when he says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, I think this is a reference to the elect. 
This is, this is Old Testament language to refer to the elect people that God has always purposed to save. Two reasons for this. You know where the name Israel comes from. Jacob had his name changed. And Jacob was the chosen son. Romans chapter 9. That name then gets passed on through the generations to God's elect. But there's even more. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Starting in verse 1, the, the prophet is commanded, and the Lord says to him, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Son of man, can those who are of themselves wicked and rebellious and carnal be brought to newness of life? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you. Cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked at the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, an exceeding great army. Now the Lord's going to explain what he just did. Then he said to me, Son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and then you will know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from the graves. Listen carefully. I will put my spirit in you. And you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. The work that Ezekiel is describing, in context, it's given to the house of Israel. But we know that this work of resurrection from the dead, this work of spiritual life, those who have the Holy Spirit in them are only the elect. Our confession, uh, our larger catechism says in question and answer 31, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him all the elect as his seed. And so the blessings of this new covenant are made over to the elect. They're made over to those who are mystically united to Christ in the decree of election. Notice some of the effects of this covenant. 
and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 10, the end of verse 10, and then going through verse 11. Notice first off, there will be a changed nature. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. You see, in the old covenant, Israel had the law outwardly. Now, in the new covenant, the law will be written on their very hearts and on their very minds. This is symbolic of a transformed nature. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that those who are carnal-minded cannot please God because they are not subject to the law of God. But those who are spiritually minded have life and peace. Why? Because the Spirit puts the law in your hearts. Those who have the Spirit of God love the law of God and want to obey the law of God from the heart. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be transformed. That's what it means to be a new creature in Christ. There's another promise given here that those who have been transformed in this way will have God as their God. Look at what he says. I will write my laws in their mind and and, uh, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I think there's two things to notice from this promise. Genesis 15 verse 1, the Lord says to Abraham, fear not, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. What it means to have God as your God, brothers and sisters, is that he's your shield. Abraham just came off the slaughter of the kings. He had just rescued his nephew Lot. And the, there's a reason It's reasonable, I should say, that Abraham would be afraid. These kings are going to come after me now. And so the Lord comes to him and says, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. Brothers and sisters, if you have God as your God, there is nothing to fear. As the Puritans used to say, fear God and fear not. God Almighty is your protector. God Almighty is your defender. God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, protects his own and he is their exceeding great reward. Brothers and sisters, the the great cash value, if we can put it that way, the, the reason we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the reason that God has given us this covenant is so that we can enjoy his glory, is so that we can enjoy him so that he himself is our portion. You remember in the Old Testament, the Levites were given no inheritance because it says the Lord was their portion. Now, in the New Covenant, all of God's people have that claim on God as their inheritance. Brothers and sisters, this is the only way to endure trial. This is the only way to endure loss. This is the only way to face death knowing that God is your inheritance, knowing that God is your reward. This is also a good way to test ourselves. What are the things that bother you about your life right now? Is it because things aren't going to plan? Because things are not working out the way you wanted them to? See, if we don't have God as our reward, if we don't fix our eyes upon Jehovah as David did, 
in Psalm 16. If we don't seek the pleasures at his right hand evermore, if we don't seek him with our whole hearts, as we read in Jeremiah 29, all these things will disturb us and ultimately destroy us. But as the prophet Isaiah said, they enjoy perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because they trust in you. Not only is God our reward, there's an expanded knowledge of God. Notice verse 11. It says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, no one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is an increased knowledge of God when compared to the Old Covenant. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. A little bit of context here. I won't read the whole thing, but a little bit of context. The 70 elders have been ordained. They have been appointed to serve as the uh, helpers of Moses. And they're told to come to the tabernacle to receive the spirit that was upon Moses. But there's two who didn't make it. They didn't show up. They were still in the camp. They weren't at the tabernacle. And as this ceremony is going on, the Spirit descends upon the 68. They all start prophesying. These other two in the camp also start prophesying. And Joshua, the son of Nun, comes up to Moses and says in verse 28, uh, uh, verse 27, sorry, uh, ran to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Notice what Moses says. Then Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. Oh, that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them, that they might know him the way I know him, that they might speak with him face to face as I, Moses, speak with him face to face. In the new covenant, that's the reality, not the exception. In the new covenant, the Spirit of God is upon all of God's people, and they know him to a degree even greater than Moses knew him. No one shall teach, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the greatest to the least. Now, verse 11 in our passage, there's, a, there's another way to read it. This is often the way that... Um, Baptist, our Baptist brothers would read that passage when it says that all shall know me from the least to the greatest they will say well what this means is that only those who know the Lord only those who are regenerate should be baptized you, you understand I think how they get there the, the prophet Jeremiah says that all of them shall know me as part of the new covenant so they reason well, only those who know the Lord, i.e., only those who are regenerate, should be baptized as a part of the new covenant. There's a problem with this reading, and it really has to do with the contrast that's going on in this passage. The old covenant is being done away with, and the new covenant is brought in because it's greater, the blessing is higher, the blessing is expanded. Now, in the old covenant... 
the children of believers were given the sign of the covenant. If, in the new covenant, the children of believers are refused the sign of the covenant, that's a decrease. That's not an increase. That's more exclusive. That's not more expansive. The other thing we need to understand about the promise is that this should be read as an expectation. Those in the new covenant, meaning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that have received the sign of the covenant, baptism in the name of the triune God, our default expectation is that they belong to the Lord. That our covenant children are His. He's put the sign on them. He's made promises that they will know Him. Other promises that He has made, Isaiah chapter 54, He says, all of your children shall be taught of the Lord. All of your covenant offspring shall be brought to know me. And so we should look at the promise of Hebrews chapter 8 with expectation. Now what do we do when we, want, we don't see the promise? What do we do when we don't see the reality? The reason God gives us promises is so we can pray. Promises are the food of prayer. If you have been given a promise by God and you don't see it in your life, there's no fault with God's promise. The fault lies on our side. And so we pray these promises. We pray over our covenant offspring. No matter how far to the east or to the west that God has scattered them from you, We pray for our covenant offspring. Lord, you promised they would all know you. You promised that you would teach my children. You promised, O oh Lord, to do what I as a parent cannot do. Fulfill your word, O oh God, please fulfill your word. The second thing we need to learn from this is that in our parenting, we must be humble. The rod does not save a soul. House rules do not save souls. Anything that we do as parents cannot save the soul of our children. Only the Spirit of God, by the power of Christ, according to His promise, can save our children. And we do that by praying. So God makes this promise that knowledge will be expanded. And all of this is for one glorious reason. Returning to Hebrews chapter 8, there's one glorious reason that all of these blessings come upon us in the new covenant. And that's the full forgiveness of sins. Look at what he says in verse 12. For, meaning assigning a reason for what he just said, law written on the heart, having God as your God, an increased and expanded prophetic knowledge of God by the work of the Spirit, for... I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now recall the context, brothers and sisters. Last time we were in Hebrews, we saw in Hebrews 8 verse 6, just maybe on the same page, maybe one page over for you. But now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. Notice the nature of this promise that's the ground of our hope. 
says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You know, when it says in the breach of the old covenant, it says that the Lord did not regard those people. He, he disregarded them. He was, he was ignorant of them. He ignored them. He couldn't care less about the people that broke his covenant. You know what he's saying here about those who walk in the Spirit and have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? He doesn't regard your sins. He doesn't care about your sins. He ignores your sins. I will remember their sins no more. Those who are in Christ have been fully forgiven of all of their sins. All of their lawless deeds have been washed away by the blood of Christ, making an atonement that you and I cannot make. However righteous we might live, however diligently we might study the Bible, how many books we read, we cannot atone for our sins. There is no hope in you. So that your hope would be in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lawless deeds I remember no more. This obviously refers to the finished work of Christ. And it's because Christ has finished His work that the Holy Spirit is poured out. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. We need to see this connection, that the Holy Spirit is a gift and a reward of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, preaching his great sermon in verse 32, says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is good news. Because God's eternal purpose has been accomplished. Redemption has been accomplished. The Spirit has been given. And he's applying that redemption to sinners across the world. This is how God saves men. This is the new covenant. Praise the Lord for his blessings. Praise the Lord for his finished work in Christ. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. And praise the Lord that there is not going to be any other covenant. That's what verse 13 is about. He says in that he calls it a new covenant. He made the old one obsolete. And he says that which is old is now passing away. For the sake of the Hebrew audience, what he's telling them is, you can't go back. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way to be right with him. There's no other way to enjoy his blessedness except through the new covenant. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For us as well, it means that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now take great encouragement from this, brothers and sisters. Because God is never going to change his covenant, that tells us it is perfect. The old covenant was faulty because of the weakness of the flesh. But as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, God did what we could not do in his son. God accomplished what our flesh could never accomplish. And so it is unchangeable and immutable. The nature of the new covenant 
is that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross, fulfilling all the requirements of the Father, has received and now is pouring out the Holy Ghost upon all his elect, renewing their natures, revealing God to them, and forgiving them of all of their sins. This covenant is the final covenant given to man whereby they must be saved. Those who enjoy the blessings are those who walk by the Spirit. Those who delight in the law of God according to the inner man, who seek no other reward but the glory of God, and who shall be fully justified when the lover of their souls returns. Are you part of the new covenant? Or are you walking according to the flesh? Brothers and sisters, it is very easy to be deceived on this point. It is very easy to be deceived on this point. It is very easy for us to fail to take heed and think that we stand. And then a fall happens. Do you walk according to the flesh? Fulfilling the lusts of your own understanding? Or do you walk in the Spirit? Fulfilling the law of God with the fruits of the Spirit? There is no other covenant by which you can be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. It doesn't matter where you are right now in your life. Everybody who hears the sound of my voice, because of the finished work of Christ, there is always an avenue for repentance and faith. There is always an opportunity to turn and be reconciled to God as long as there's breath in your lungs. Repent and believe in the gospel. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your covenant and that you have blessed us with the gift of the Holy Spirit and we pray Lord that you would ever be mindful of your covenant you would forgive us of our carnal ways and that you by the Spirit would mortify the deeds of the body that we might live show us more of your glory Cause us to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to wait patiently for the revelation of Christ. For it is to him alone that we look, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.